Hi everyone, John Clare here, and welcome to the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. How is everyone doing today? I hope all is well. You can think of today's episode as being the second in our starting a new business series, if you will. You may recall back in episode five, we spoke with attorney Sam Kaufman about the legal aspects of starting a new business. And perhaps today's episode should have come before that one, but nonetheless, here we are. So today we're going to talk all about finding the right idea for a product or service, or as our guest sees it, finding the right problem to solve. We're super lucky to have former Disney and Martin Agency executive Neil Patel here to talk with us all about it. Neil's basically been in the idea-driven business his entire career, spanning the advertising, marketing, and entertainment industries. He grew up in a family of entrepreneurs where business was talked about at the dinner table, like most other families would talk about news or sports. He's lived on four continents, worked in big corporations, small companies, and isn't shy about talking up both his successes and failures in the startup world, which is why I think Neil's the perfect guest for today's episode. Plus, he's just an all-around fun guy. Today, we've also got the full EvoFi team here, myself, Dave O'Brien, and Penny Lowbread as well. If you're not already a subscriber to this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We love feedback and questions, so drop us a line at evofipodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter or Instagram on evofipodcast. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and some fun, too. If you need advice on any of the top topics mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, please give us a call and we'll try to help. With that said, here's the EvoFi team talking with Neil Patel. Enjoy. Drop some fat beats and then all right, get started. Dave so remembers cool. back from the so DJ cool. days. P H A T. Yeah, right, I, I was the DJ when we actually had turntables. In a microphone? Were there two turntables on a microphone? Two turntables on a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you guys ready to get started? Let's yeah. do this. All right, everybody. Well, welcome to the Evo Five Podcast. Today we're going to be talking with our friend Neil Patel about starting a small business with the right idea. This is kind of a companion episode from the episode, which was, I guess, episode five, where we did one on the legal aspects of starting a business. So I think we may have gotten the cart before the horse a little bit where we said, legally, this is how you do it. But, oh, yeah, we hope you have an idea first. So, Well, maybe what what our listeners are all going to go do is, after listening to this, go back and listen to this, uh, this session that we did with uh, with Sam Kaufman. And that's it. That's the yeah. exact. That's exactly right. Or that one scared you off from starting a business, and now we have three people listening. Let's let's hope that's not the case. That's yeah, let's <laughs> hope. I, truth be told, we're super excited to have Neil here. He's pretty much been in the idea driven business his entire career, uh, and uh, he's still got a lot lot in the tank left. And so we're very grateful that you're here today, and we look forward to hearing about what you've got uh, on your mind. Happy to be here. Uh, so I'm gonna look around the table real quick here, and uh, so it's a it's a Monday here in in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, we usually do this on Wednesday. There's the scent of paint fumes in the air, so if we it's sound funny. a little rowdy, or we pass out during the show. That's right. But people will be listening to this so much later that we will. Yeah. 
So we'll be beyond that's any, any rescue. That's our disclaimer up front. So if yeah. you hear Mariami's voice, it means one of us has passed out. Um, all right. So here's the deal. From the uh, paint fumes, not that's the right. topic. Yeah, of Just course. Of course. No, this is going to be a great topic. And all joking aside. Thank you for our, clarifying. <laughs> all joking aside, our goal here is to really help kind of get some folks thinking about this topic. I know personally I've talked to a lot of people who are really thinking about how do they actually use their expertise into something that's more productive for them and something that's more enjoyable. And oftentimes coming up with that right idea is, is it sounds easy, but it's often not a great business idea. So that's where Neil comes in. and um, We're looking forward to exploring that with you. But first, Neil, as you know, we have uh -oh. the Evo 5. Okay, what is that? You need an Evo 5 themed song. I do. When you there's right. a theme song? So Matt, our producer, will uh, work on that. But um, yeah, we'll put a theme song in for the future, maybe the next season in 2019. That's Anyhow, so Neil. Um, so these are the five questions that we ask every guest on the podcast. Okay. So you're really pretending you haven't heard these before. I'm going to, yes. I figured yes. that you would be a I've ringer. I've never heard on, of them. I figured you'd be a ringer on all these, so we changed them up a little bit. Okay. Maybe not all of them, but for Penny's sake, we got rid of one. We swapped them out. So here we go. By the way, uh, I should mention in the room here is Penny Lowbread, Dave O'Brien, Neil Patel, and I'm John Clare. All right, here we go, Neil. What was your first job? My first job was bussing tables at a Red Lobster. And I don't like lobster anymore ever since that job. Do they actually have lobster at Red Lobster? Yes. Or is that like sea legs? Back in the day, they so still like had pressed white fish in they a mold with red food dye. Well, you know, you don't want to know what happens. That's true. Back in the kitchen. Very really? true. I used to love Red Lobster, those lobster mashed potatoes. Well, they always play Lou Rawls on a, on a loop. So anymore, every time I hear Lou Rawls, <laughs> all I think about is that place and seafood, and I just got to how to stop it. Exactly. So it wasn't food quality, it was Lou Rawls. It, it, was, it was really, it was really both. But I could not listen to Lou Rawls ever again. Okay. Oh, very fine man, good music. I'm <laughs> sure. he, he, yeah. All right, I was going to say some sort of silly joke after that, but I won't. What's your favorite word? Kismet. Explain. Kismet, it's, uh, well, besides being an Indian word, it's uh, an ancient word. I like the idea of serendipity. You can plan a lot of stuff. You could, you know, worry about a lot of things, but if you just move forward in life, there's luck happens. It's not always good, it's but an it Indian happens. Word. It is. It is like bungalow is an Indian word, by the way. Um, bungalow. Bungalow is an Indian word, but kismet, kismet in your bungalow. I don't know, but yeah, uh, I'm trying to use them in a sentence. Yeah, together. yeah. The, uh, it's this idea of this set of serendipity. You know, like. You that you just never know who you're going to meet. You just never know what you're going to learn. You you know, it's this idea that you just go forward and hopefully a positive accident will happen in your life and you'll learn something accidentally that like might take you on a course somewhere. Start a bungalow business. Exactly. You Probably not a good an example that we can talk about. Probably yeah. not a good idea for the name for a financial advisory firm. Bungalow. Just, just kind it of sounds like bungle in it. It's yeah. probably right. not good. <laughs> bungle is not good. <laughs> and kismet means ah, you really help. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> what's something you know that you do differently than most people? Um, how I meet people. Um, I. It's funny. I, I had young people working for me, and we would go to these big conferences, and most of them would be the first time out, and they would get very intimidated by being in a big room with a lot of people. And, you know, I had to just explain to them that everybody in the world 
uh, is ex- the world's greatest expert on one thing, and it's themselves. And so if you just ask people about themselves, things get started and just be inquisitive and open about their story and you learn a lot and you'll be before you know it in a conversation. It's a lot more interesting than asking them about the weather. Exactly right. And, you know, far less uh, reliable. And less boring. Well, you hope. You would hope. You'll find out. But you know what? Everybody has a story. Everybody has a journey. Everybody has like, you know, I always find interesting the decisions they made and how they made them and what led them to make them. And there's a fair amount of kismet in it as well. Mm-hmm. So so this may sound silly, but it's all about how you ask that question. So I've heard you know, when you ask somebody to talk about themselves, I've heard you could say, well, so what's your story? Are there other ways that you, you start that conversation? Yeah. I think this is a helpful little hint. In I, I almost never say what's your story. Oh. I always go... People always find it easier to talk about work before they talk about anything else and go, well, what do you do? And how did you choose that line of work? You know, and uh, what parts of that line of work do you find challenging? And if I know something about their industry, I might say, well, I heard this happen. Is that true or is it just me? And people will just go and then go, well, you know, is it hard on your family? And then invariably you hear about their family and uh, where'd you go to school? And so do they find you in school? Do they find you post-school? Oh, I just fell into it. Oh, really? What was the day like and the moment that led you into it? And all of a sudden you're kind of right there when they're making a big decision they didn't know about that would form the rest of their lives. So it's an interesting, I don't know, I kind of, I find getting invested in people's journeys as to how they arrived where they did uh, really fascinating. And you, and people are happy to talk about it because that's the one thing they're the world's greatest expert on is themselves. I feel at ease just listening to Neil. <laughs> I feel open. Just, just just thinking of what the answers are supposed to be. So let's 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 talk about Neil some more. Tell us more about Wait, yourself, Neil. Don't we have two more? Yeah, we do. Oh, okay. But I'm going along with that theme here. All right. Greatest of all time. If you can name one person or a person yeah. that in your mind is the greatest of all time in entertainment, sport, politics, uh, business, mm. who comes to mind? I would say well, you know, I just watched this Neil Armstrong movie, First Man. And it really was just, again, reminded about how amazing those guys were, those people were. And um, I think the greatest of all time is obviously Chuck Yeager, mm. the guy who uh, flew the first jet mm-hmm. uh, faster than the speed of sound. He's now 95. He's still he alive, He still right? gets in an airplane and goes up there. He always has a check pilot with him. Does he? And I'm a nut for airplanes, so I guess maybe that's more top of mind for me. But... Uh, there's just maybe one other pilot who's been better than him that he acknowledges, and he's a very modest guy, but just an incredibly, incredibly talented guy. And when you look at some of these things that those guys went through, you just Unbelievable. shake your head as to how extraordinary those people were and what kind of risks they took with 1960s equipment that was conceived in the 1950s. You know, it was just amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world, isn't it? No pun intended. It's crazy. Yeah. Unbelievable. And if you haven't seen First Man, you should. It's Recommend really it? cool. <laughs> yeah. They, they were showing that at the uh, Air and Space Museum at, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Really? I guess they have like an IMAX theater. There yeah, I, I, I didn't see it in IMAX, but I would want to see it in IMAX if I saw it again. So. All right, Neil. Here's the, here's the, here's the multimedia section. Okay. Is it Lou Rawls? No. Oh, that would have been great. Just wondering. I can edit that back in. All right, Neil. So we try to do a name that tune in the theme of the podcast. Oh, boy. My money is on Penny getting this right away. Dave will probably never get it. 
Okay. I wouldn't get it either. I would be. They you know, say that Dave, a lot. <laughs> you might just be hip enough. Mariame, I don't know. So here we go. Ready, Neil? I have no idea. In this context, there's no disrespect. So when I bust my rhyme, you break your necks. We got five minutes for us to disconnect from all You got me. I'll give you one hit. How'd you do that? I have it. Oh, you know it. Dave know knows it. it. I know it, yeah. Can you give Neil a hint? I know people have tuned in and listened to the topic, but we should try and work this a little bit before it's, we get it, it started. It, it's not a song from the Green Beans. <laughs> That's kind of a. It's not Green Day. No, <laughs> Good. no. So you could give him the no. band name, right. maybe. Okay, it's a three. There are three words in the name of the band, and they were like really big at the beginning of the century. Really big at the beginning of the century, and 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 because they brought in a new lead singer. Oh gosh, Neil Stump. He's like, help I'm me out. Stumped. I'm gonna give Neil the name. It's a Black Eyed Peas. Oh. Okay. Of course. Think of the name of the pod. Think of the theme of the podcast. Coming up with a new idea. Yeah, I gotcha. Can you sing it, Penny? No, I cannot sing it. Let's get it started. Let's get it started. Have you heard that song? Let's get it started. Yes. Yes. I figured going. I've actually seen him in concert. I can't believe I didn't remember. I knew. I had a feeling. Yeah. I had a feeling. You could have used Fergalicious. Well, there's a Lou Rawls. Lou Rawls next time. New Rawls next time. All right. Well, anyway, you're a good. You're a good sport. Thank you. Now that everybody is feeling relaxed and creative let's talk about the topic at hand so when we talk about starting a new business people always say well great well what is my product what is my service what is my idea and i don't know the statistic offhand you may know but was that a majority by a far margin of businesses that start do not succeed it's 50 percent fail within four years okay so that is so if you make it to year five and you're still alive you're, you know, you're still a flip of a coin away. Um, and that, and then certain businesses have a much, much higher mortality rate, uh, like restaurants and things like that, that, uh, and you should, you know, research and study it. These statistics change all the time, but there are certain businesses that have a very, very high, um, failure rate. Um, you want to steer for, clear for of those of unless yeah. you know what you're doing. Yeah. I, I always look at it as people always think, <clears throat> you know, where's the idea but I always stop and go, you don't always have to come up with a new idea. Just buy a business that you may know a lot about that's underperforming um, that you can fix up because of your special expertise, either about the, uh, the geography or the industry or something that's not being done well that you feel pretty confident that you could do better. Um, the, the advantage there is there's already an existing business. There's already existing profits, hopefully, and uh, you know it's probably well past the four-year mark, uh, and so there's a certain amount of uh, resilience built in. But you just have to be confident that you're bringing something to it that will make it better, bigger, faster in some way, shape, or form that's uh, meaningful or a new customer set or so forth. So that's that's one part. It's people always go, I gotta, I gotta have an idea. I gotta start something. You're like, well, maybe you don't. Maybe you need to just go find something that needs to get fixed up, taken into another medium. Like there's a great opportunity in taking uh, very unique mom and pop businesses that have, haven't gone onto the internet yet and haven't been globalized yet 
they're just have a local retail map as an example. So, so for folks, uh, for folks who are listening, who yeah. have been thinking they had to cook up their own idea that they've never thought that no one's ever thought of before, where does one go to find information on on businesses that? Uh, may fit that profile, whether they're for sale or not. Look, uh, look, or sign up for um, business brokers. So just look up business brokers, and they're like your real, uh, they're like real estate listing agents. They just instead of listing houses, they list businesses, and that's what they traffic in is uh, buying and selling businesses. And they're in different search engines around that. You can pick which industry you want to go into. You can pick how much you want to pay or how much down payment you have or not. By the way. There are some very creative ways to finance the acquisition of a business, which we can talk about, some of which may make you guys, you know, quake in your boots because they're a little bit risky, but it depends on what your appetite is. But that's if you're going to buy something that already exists. So, you know, that, you know, that comes with de-risking in a certain level uh, of from starting from scratch. On the other hand, you have to be willing to write a check to do something. And, you know, an existing business may have its own issues, you know, uh, which means you've got to do due diligence. You've got to, you've got to know, you know, you got to have some help going in there to figure out what it is you're buying, just like you would a house. All so right, so that's so, one way to go. Okay. If you're going to do something new, then um, the other fallacy I, people, I think I see people struggle with is they go, I need an idea. What's your idea? And there's this obsession with the idea. And the reality is you're not really looking for an idea. If you're looking for an idea, you're looking for the wrong thing. You should be looking for a problem, a problem to solve. And it's got to be a problem that has got to be painful to someone. Um, and uh, the, the way I think about it is the guys who invented Google were trying to solve a big problem. What was the problem? Well, this internet thing had come along. It was growing like crazy. Everybody understood there was good things there, but it was really hard to find exactly what you needed and have it so that it was sorted so you got exactly what you needed. It was a big problem, and it was a big problem with for a lot of people. And they invented Google to solve that problem. Uh, and that's a, the other thing is you can't just think about it going, oh, that's a problem. Maybe I'll go solve that problem. The reality is you've got to think through and go, well, it is a big enough problem for a lot of people. If it is a big problem for a lot of people, you've got a mass product. You've got to think about how that's going to get executed. On the other hand, you could have a big problem for a very small group of people, and that's also a very sustainable business. It's a niche business. So, for example, uh, there's a business in New York of you could stay in a hotel or a it's not a hotel it's more like a very well funded condominiums but you can leave all your clothes there uh if you go between LA and New York or if you're in New York all the time and all of your clothes there everything's there so when you check in they just roll your whole closet into huh. your room and you're able to be there for a day or two to whatever you're doing in business you take care of whatever and then you're gone and then it hit move your whole closet which is on rollers and put it away in storage, including clean up whatever you needed cleaned or whatever for your next trip back. Well, that's a problem for people flying between two big cities, going back and forth a lot, don't want to deal with bags, don't want to deal with the hassle. Well, that's a big problem for a small group of elite people. There's a similar business around golf clubs. Well, if you want to go golf for, on golf vacations, there's a company that'll pick up your golf clubs 
And then you end up at the other end and they deliver your golf clubs. You're not taking them through an airport. You're not hauling them with all your other stuff. That's a problem for a small group of people. That's a niche product. So it's uh, you're solving a problem for somebody, uh, you know, when when you're you're doing that. Um, so let me ask you a question. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So, so those are a couple of great examples there that people are probably listening going, oh, my gosh, that's such a great idea. So what kind of exercise? I mean, I know you've been in the idea business a long time. Are there certain exercises that, you know, listeners can go through where that can pull some of those ideas out of maybe their experience or their brains to then help them rack and stack and figure out which ones are worth pursuing, investigating more? I mean, are there, or is it literally just one in the middle of the night, one night you wake up and, oh, the idea of the mobile closet hotel thing. I mean, you, you, what well, do you recommend? <clears throat> you should always have a notebook next to your uh, night table if you're an idea person. Um, I just got done telling you ideas are not a good thing, but just to write down. Well, and we get call it, them problems. Well, if you're a problem, so, if you're a problem yeah, person, it doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Who yeah. wants to hang out with a yeah. problem person? Um, the idea the, the notepad by the table. The idea there is to just record things down. The other thing is if you're good at ideas, i.e. solutions to problems, people are always worried that someone will steal your idea or problem. The reality is most people don't really have the follow-through to actually stand something up. And chances are if you've got an idea of how to solve a problem, someone else in the world also does. It's really who goes forward and, and, and solves it. You have to think about it from a perspective of you'll never run out of ideas. You'll never run out of ideas. If you're an idea person, you'll never run out. There'll always be a new one. The problem always is how do you solve and get forward uh, going on it, which, which is what you're asking, John. So the ways to sort of figure that out is, one, uh, do you know something about it? Like there's pros and cons to this. If you're in an industry, and I always liken it to doctors, they know a lot about which drugs work. They know a lot about what the issues are in the medical system. If someone's going to find a problem to solve, they're going to be the closest to it, theoretically, assuming they actually take action. Um, now, where that falls down, and you see this in the car business, it took Elon Musk, who is not in the car business, to come in and rethink the car business. Sometimes being an outsider can help you think about solving a problem in a different way because you're bringing a different construct to it. So you've got to sort of look at, say, are you an outsider or an insider as a problem solver? But at the end of the day, you really have to come down to, at least in my mind, two big, really simple metrics on how you decide if it's a problem worth solving. Um, and the first one is, well, what the banks will tell you is like, well, go do a business plan and write a long business plan. And you're like, what's a business plan? And and there's a discipline that comes with that exercise, and it could be valuable. But I would argue, and a lot of people who do this kind of work now argue that you probably don't want to mess around with the business plan. It just paralyzes you. Um, you know, it's something a bank would need if they want to, if you want to get a loan from them. But honestly, the sooner, the the quicker thing you want to do is figure out if someone will actually pay you for it. Mm -hmm. And the way to get there is one: if it's a problem, whether it's a big problem for a large group of people or a big problem for a small group of people. You've got to go find out, well, okay, how intense is the problem? And I have a, a friend here in Richmond who um, came up with a great way to think about it. I don't know if he thought about it, but I certainly heard about it from, from him first, which is, well, is the thing you're solving and what you're offering a painkiller or a vitamin? And that really helps people really crystallize, well, what is it that you've got? 
Because there's a lot of stuff that you're like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to do this? Wouldn't it be nice to do that? Well, you know, boy, it'd be great if we had one of those. Well, there's a pretty good chance that that's a vitamin. A vitamin is one of those things you're like, you know, you should really take this. Is one better than the other? In the kind of the... Um, well, if you're, you know, going back to my Chuck Yeager piece of conversation, you're really operating, when you're operating a business, you have to think about it. You're operating in a, a hostile, high-risk environment, right? There's a 50% chance you're going to, or, or greater, that you're not going to succeed. So the safer thing would be to go find something that's really a, um, a painkiller, not a vitamin. So you'd say, I got a tooth that's a massive toothache. I got to get this tooth out. Where's the dentist? Versus, you know, you should take some vitamins. It might make you healthier and feel better, and you might live longer. What are you going to do? You're going to pay whatever you need to pay to find that dentist and get that tooth taken out. If you're in the business of finding you a dentist right quickly, I think you're going to pay for it. Whereas vitamins, that's a different thing. So you got to really think about, is it a painkiller or a vitamin? And then if it's a painkiller, to whom is yeah. it? Because it's not going to be the same for everybody. So that's one metric. The second metric is, let's say you build the thing, whatever it is, a service or a product. And I learned this from a boss I had at Disney. Uh, and he had this wonderful way of capsulizing these things. And he just said, you know, a problem or a new idea has so much going against it, right? Human inertia, competition, nobody knows you, uh, just on and on and on. And he said to actually succeed, something new has to be half as expensive and twice as good or easy. So whatever you develop in the beginning has to be half as expensive and twice as easy or good, like on some formula between those things. Because that's the only way you're going to drive trial of whatever it is you've got. Remember, you've, and when someone, you know, it's like the lady who hands out cheese whiz in the supermarket. It's sort of like, uh, you know, you've got to fall in love with it for a little bit before you go back to buy the whole box. Uh, and so that's how you have to think about it. So ironically, when I think of Disney World, I think twice as expensive <laughs> and uh, yes. maybe twice as good. But uh, so... And I, I was curious as you were saying that, I was thinking along those lines, is it a painkiller or is it a vitamin? Uh, what, it, which one? It meaning uh, Disney? Disney. Oh my uh. goodness, I could go on for hours about that. Um, the reason it's become what it's become is when you look at surveys uh, of American families, it's Disney's a private business that's now become a rite of passage. So, you know, you're going to be faced with your kid seven, eight, nine, 10 years old going, well, so-and-so went to Florida, my friend Tommy, when are we going to go? When are we going to go? So it's really become a rite of passage. Uh, and it's something that's connected to memory. It's connected to a whole lot of things. So it's sort of something that people can't imagine not doing at least once. Hmm. Um, and then from a perspective of how, you know, you know, it, Disney is expensive, but it, half as good or twice as good, half as expensive. What would happen is people would always go in thinking, oh my goodness, this is so expensive. I spent so much money getting us in here. But that's not the litmus test. The litmus test is really, and we know this from you know, the surveys and work we did, um, is when you're going home, your kids are tired, they're on your shoulders, you're walking towards your car, you look around and people almost always go, boy, that was expensive, but that was worth it because you just made a lot of memories that you're going to remember a long time. So it's really competing on value 
versus price. And that's something else people get wrong. All right. So I had a couple of clarifying points. Uh, one was around, um, so I wrote down two words, Neil, neither of which I had when we started. This was called starting a business with the right idea. I scratched that right idea and wrote right problem. And then you mentioned painkillers or vitamins. So as we move on to the next step of our discussion, which I'll mention in a second, which I think people will find very helpful, differentiate for me just even simpler, the painkiller versus vitamin. Is it, uh, I think about it in our world, like uh, working with a CPA, that to me is a painkiller, right? Something you have to have to, to be on the right side of the law. Whereas working with a fiduciary, that's kind of a vitamin. It makes you feel good, but not everybody has to take vitamins, you know? So is that, is that how I should be looking at this? If I'm looking uh, to, to look at it depends, the right problem? It depends on who you are, right? Um, so if you look at the vitamin example, if you don't have very complicated assets or financials, it probably is a vitamin. You know, the fact that your fiduciary can be trusted and you're really looking out for the client's interest maybe is not as important if you don't really have much to lose or if what you have is relatively simple to navigate uh, in terms of assets. Um, my understanding of your clients and, you know, also being one myself is that if you have a complicated life, if you have a complicated portfolio, which anybody with any kind of assets in midlife onwards, or maybe even sooner have, it is too complicated between the tax laws, between the various investment options, horizon planning, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, even if you have a business education like I do, it's one, too complicated. Two, it changes too often. Uh, uh, three, it is immensely important uh, to be not be done by amateurs. You know, like, would I repair my own car? No, I would not. It's very complicated and it's essential. Just like um, I think my personal financial planning going, you know, looking 10 and 20 years into the future, it's complicated and it's essential. So for me- So it depends. It's it a depends on the, on, exactly. the, on, on the type of client you're, you're talking Correct. about. Correct. Okay. Well, that, that's very helpful then. All right. So let's, let's get to the next part, which is, well, how do we know? So we have an idea. Mm -hmm. We have a problem, mm -hmm. right? Uh, maybe a vitamin or a painkiller. So how do we test it? In your experience, how do we go out, whether it's a test market or I was listening to a podcast this morning and it was talking about the absence of a business plan. And really your goal was to get to a service or something that's real as soon as possible because you want to know if it's going to fail. When they say fail fast, mm -hmm. uh, you want to know if that happens. So what are some ways people can test it? So the beautiful thing about doing this now versus 10 and 20 years ago uh, and even 50 years ago in the whole business plan orthodoxy came along is you can take an idea, you could write um, a statement, a benefit statement or a pitch ad for yourself and just buy some ads for 50 bucks on Google and see if people search for it, see if people ping on it, you know, try it on Facebook. You can buy Facebook ads for not a lot of money and test out your concept. And if people decide that they want it, uh, you could say, well, there, there it is. And you could figure out, well, who wants it? You could even try different pricing strategies, $49, $39, $29, see what happens. But you could, you know, very easily test this at global scale, uh, right? Using Google or Facebook or any of those platforms to just work out your promise. Or you could even, and you know, you could do it globally, meaning you're going to just test everybody in the world, or you could just, you know, test it around just the geography you're in. So for instance, in Richmond, you can just set a filter to it 
and find out very quickly uh, if people are interested in that um, product or service. You don't even have to have the product or service. You can say, I'll have it to you in 30 days, coming in 60 days. So what do you put in front of them? So I have two questions. One is, how do you actually do that? I hear, you know, you can do it on Google or Facebook. So one, how do you do that? And then secondly, what do you need to have to put in front of them? Do you need an ad? You mentioned you don't even have to have a product yet necessarily. You, but w- what needs to be put in front of you a could, potential buyer? You could write um, a statement um, and buy like an AdSense ad. So th- then again, the other thing that's great about Google and Facebook, there's many things that are not so great about Google and Facebook. But one of the good things about Google and Facebook is very self-serve. So if you want to know how to buy an ad on Google or Facebook, you go there and there are videos that show you how to do it that show you how to set uh, the various limits and how to evaluate things. So you don't need to be an advertising executive to figure out how to do that. It is available to anybody. And in fact, there's a lot of self-taught people who do this all over the world. Um, um, And it's in multiple languages. Or you could hire someone who does that. And that's, again, very easy to find uh, on Google or Facebook. You know, help me launch my product. You know, punch that in and see what comes up in your local market. And somebody will probably do that for you. Um... The other area you could also do is you could just uh, run a SurveyMonkey sort of survey, right? You could go to SurveyMonkey and work up a survey about, hey, you know, if I rolled out this product at this price point, it had these things, which are the three things you'd want the most? People would vote on it. You could very quickly get an approximation of what it is. If it's a big problem, Mm -hmm. if it's a big problem to whom and how many uh, what kind of people there are, yeah, and how many of those people may exist in the world. It's all very much, um, you know, like in wild catting when they drill wells. You know, like they 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 drill a lot of sort of you know wells, test wells to see what something's like, whether there's oil down there. And this is really the very similar exercise. You're basically drilling some test wells in in to figure out if there's a there there. Have you, in your experience, and you may not be able to reveal any of this, but are there some examples that come to mind where You've seen ideas tested in this way, some that may have really had a great response and some that that maybe were thought to be great ideas but didn't have a great response. I don't have any like immediate uh, examples. There's just so much in the doing. So uh, so in the old-fashioned way of pra- – so when you have an enormous amount of capital required to roll out an idea, you want to test it far more uh, with more discipline than what I just described. But most things generally don't fit that. Uh, if you're going to be launching a new jet engine, you don't want to be naturally naturally yeah. doing those things. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, I was traveling through Dubai about 10, 15 years, 10, 12 years ago, and the iPhone had just come out. And I recalled being in the airport thinking, uh, when I saw all these prayer rooms for all the pilgrims that travel through that airport, Muslim pilgrims, I'm like, wait, you know, the Prophet Muhammad wasn't around when these apps came out on the iPhone and all these Muslims have to dutifully turn to Mecca five times a day or three times a day, depending on which form of Muslim you are and pray. Well, they need to figure out which way Muslim uh, uh, Mecca is. So I came up with the idea of creating an app called the Mecca Locator right in that moment. And I came home, I'm not Muslim. I call up a guy named Reza Aslan, who I'm friends with, who's a scholar in this space. And we teamed up and created an app and put it out there in like a month with some other friends of mine. And it was globally distributed. And we were selling this app uh, around the world. And in the selling of it, 
we re we learned a lot about like oh apple impounds 30% of your money by territory around the world and they hang on to that oh we had this huge uptake for french people wanting our app and so we had to quickly figure out how to version it into french we didn't realize oh there's a lot of muslims who live in france uh who own iphones as an example so it's it's a way of sort of getting now had we stuck to that business we would have created a lot of follow-on products and so on and so forth for that very vertical population um and you know to to serve them so all right so it's, it seems like when you're doing some of this testing and you get it out there, it seems I'm trying to give our listeners some sort of a way to quantify whether, mm -hmm. hey, this is really great or eh, it's kind of in the middle. I think you can tell the polar opposites of it really isn't not a great idea mm -hmm. and if you get no response. Whereas if you get the opposite, anything kind of in between, any any sort of uh, guidance you can give on on whether the results reveal something that you should pursue or if it's time to move on? You should first just do it. Yep. Uh, and the cost of doing it is plummeted uh, to try new things. Um, the second thing, and the most important thing is whether you should stick to it is, did the people you sold it to come back and order another one? Did the people you sold it to recommend their closest friends to come back and get one? That's really the ultimate litmus test, right? Because you could always win once, uh, but if they come back to buy another, then that's, you've got something. If they're willing to uh, invest their social capital and get their friends to come and try it, which of course, with social media and a lot of these sort of tools around, uh, that's what sort of really drives adoption and awareness now, um, you figure out really quickly how that is. And then that effectively creates velocity. If it's creating Sufficient velocity relative to your burn rate, meaning how much money you're spending to actually well, make that happen. That's a marketing word right there. Um, burn rate. Burn rate. Um, then, then you're probably succeeding. If people aren't coming back and they're only buying once, you've probably got a product problem, or it's not a recurring problem. You've mm -hmm. solved it once. You're done. In which case, you better be charging a lot of money because you charged. You know, you've solved a big problem. And you're done, and you're never going to have to think about that again. Well, it sounds like Mecha Locator falls into that, right? You know, once you I found have the it. app, now I'm good. Well, we actually uh, created a whole follow-on business in there of selling people uh, digital prayer rugs because, in the Muslim tradition, having different prayer rugs roll out at different times of day and all that was it's a big deal. We were actually going to go and do a digital Quran, but we. At that point, we all sort of uh, were moving on to other jobs, and we thought we learned a lot, and we moved on. But that would have been a business that, that you could have built over time. Makes sense. Any guidance on a product versus a service? I mean, I think we've worked with folks who kind of go, go in both areas with ideas, but in your experience, is, is one direction any more so, um, again, pro, than the other? Again, pros and cons. Um, I read something last night that actually – was really uh, profound in terms of thinking about this problem, product versus service. Um, and the adage was really simple. It was this, that we're now in an era where if you have a product, you need to have a great service mentality. So think about Zappos. They sell you shoes, but nobody talks about their shoes. They always talk about Zappos' service, right? Like how well you serve people is really the big difference, right? Mm -hmm. Apple sells you product but people really rave about its service and integration and all the products work well together. 
Uh, I would argue Tesla people would say the same thing is that you get a product, but it's the service, the entire experience that really differentiates it. So if you have a product, you need to think about it as a service. And if you have a service, uh, which is, you know, you're doing some kind of hourly work. Uh, and if you have a business that's selling a service, you know, be it a doctor, a lawyer, you know, you're repairing cars, whatever, you've got to figure out a way to productize it. Uh, so if you're in a service business, you've got to figure out how to productize it. And productize it really means, well, okay, have you created a package for the low end? You know, what do you get? Like, where's the small, medium, and large of what you do? And is it at some fixed price point you people can understand what they get? Mm -hmm. And then if it's a custom version, what do you get for customization? Um, and, and service businesses suffer here the most because they don't scale very easily. Scale meaning, you know, another litmus test about a business or something you want to get into is can you make money in your sleep? If you're well, in a who product, would want that? Well, who would want that? Exactly. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Uh, I thought you were being um, uh, facetious there, but that's not you, John. Uh, <laughs> um, the idea there is really, um, if you're in a product business, it's very easy theoretically to be in the money while you sleep, right? Your, your product shipping. If you're selling digital products like the apps, they were selling whether I was there or not. People in France were downloading them and Czechoslovakia and places like that. They're downloading these things and you're making money in your sleep, but the service mattered. So whenever someone gave us a two-star or three-star rating, we had to be right on it. We have to fix it right away because it affect our product sales right away. Um, the product businesses tend to scale well. You could sell them globally. You can make money in your sleep, but you have to have that service mindset. On the service side, you can't really scale well. So you've got to figure out, do you license your service? Do you, you have to find a way to either charge more per hour, and there's limits to that, or... Uh, and which is going to be dependent on being a brand where, you know, you only get you. Like I was once in a room with Frank Geary, uh, the architect, the celebrated architect. And he walked in and he talked to my boss for a brief minute and he left. And I thought, wow, that guy, because of his name, can probably just draw something on a cocktail napkin. And it'd be worth a lot of money, the cocktail napkin itself, whether we actually ever built a building or not. It was a really big deal. But because he's a name and he provides a service, architectural services, it's a big deal. So you have to either charge more, which means you got to become a brand, or you got to figure out a way to license and scale the service in some way mm -hmm. um, uh, to make that work. And a lot of that has to do with, again, productizing. So are you onboarding your people in a particular way? Are you teaching them in the same way? Are you producing your service product in a consistent way over time? Again, productizing. Those are the things you have to think about. Dave looks like he has something to say, so I'm going to give him a second before Dave I... Dave looks puzzled. He, he's, very pen, he's very pensive. <laughs> All right. Dave's thinking of a new business idea. Yeah. Something you want I can to see me? the Mac color wheel on Dave's forehead <laughs> so, operating so, right now. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I had a great question. Give me one second here. Uh, Dave's look threw me off. Um, <laughs> I would say that most of the folks, if we kind of keep going through the progression of, of where, where we wanted to go today... Uh, folks have kind of started thinking about, okay, okay, I've got this idea. It's a service. Most people, I'd venture to say, aren't thinking globally, at least initially. Um, and it may not differ very much from what you mentioned around how to test a concept. Same thing. If someone wants to promote the idea yep. to a special, a certain segment of Richmond or Virginia or whatever, is, is promoting and marketing that product or service any different than the initial targeting that you mentioned? Um, not really. It's uh, it, Hopefully, you figured out 
who it is that you're solving this problem for and where they hang out. Um, and hopefully you've figured out what they're willing to pay. Um, the best thing in the internet age that you can do, I don't care what you're selling, um, is make the product or service extremely well. Like just do it really, really well. And the reason is, is because it's really easy now to tell other people if you found something that's good by your customers, right? It's a really quick email, it's a forward, it's a like, it's any of those sorts of things that make it, word of mouth is really easy to travel. Whereas in our parents' day, someone had to write a letter to the editor or yeah, to you. It's different now. Or tell over the fence. You know, yeah. and now it's not. It's a, it's a lot easier. But if you also have a crappy product, if you have a terrible product, it's just as easy to kill it off. So the first thing you could do to market your product is to make it really great, you know, and offer really great service. That is actually what is the best marketing you can do. The yeah. second thing you can do then is figure out who you're talking to and are you talking to them in the right voice, in the right way, at the right price point. And that's, again, a function of testing. Okay. Now, one of the things you mentioned that it's a, it's a little bit of an aside, and Dave, this, this will take you back a little bit. You may or may not remember this, but back uh, 20 years ago, we worked for a, a rather large company, uh, and there was this thing called word of mouth marketing that was like the new thing, you know, and we were going to... That's Meet before with, social media was invented. Right, and we were going to yeah. go to Procter & Gamble because they were the masters because it was mothered. Moms, moms would talk, you know, and they would talk about these. And it wouldn't have to be kid products, but they would talk. And how do you reproduce that in the financial services world or whatever? And nobody could figure it out outside of Procter & Gamble except then social media came. And now the tables were completely uh, level. And yeah, it became much, much easier to do it much, much more efficiently. Yeah, I think post really 2007, 2008, um, word of mouth, good and bad, mm -hmm. and for good purposes and evil purposes, has now been put on steroids, right? It's global. Mm -hmm. um, and it has some sort of adverse uh, societal implications. But if you're launching a product, and again, if it's good, and most especially if your product is digital, right? A song or a book or, or a video or something that's, you know, bits, not atoms, then you could really build something nearly overnight in terms of word of mouth. Okay. Um, and it's, a, it's really become a business forum and an art forum and a marketing forum in its own right. And it's still in its infancy, both uh, in its goodness and, uh, and its badness in terms of what it does to people. So in the interest of time, because I, I want to get to a few last things here, and I know there's a couple topics that didn't fit into the initial progression of idea to testing, to marketing, to selling. What other advice would you give folks who are thinking about this, about this idea, uh, whether it's from how do you pay for it to you know, how do you surround yourself with the right people? What, what is, in your experience, are, are good tips uh, for folks contemplating it? Well, if your idea requires a team... Um, that's another test of the strength of your idea. If really great people opt into it, that means you've got something good. It's not just your own judgment saying, hey, this might be good. Other people are like, yeah, actually, that is a good idea. I want to opt in. That's a very good signal because people are willing to vote with their feet, which is even more important than being able to vote with your wallet. Um, and having a great team is probably the most important thing you could do because it's going to require, and it's got to be a diverse team. It can't be like five people who think exactly like you and have the same background as you. You have to have 
I've seen the best businesses have kind of a magical group of five people with complementary skill sets who drive it forward. It's usually three to five people uh, that do that. So do you have the right people? The other thing I always see is if you're solving a problem, it's important or it's useful to have it be a cause, uh, something that's not right in the world, that's terribly wrong in the world. Uh, I had a CEO who had worked with um, Steve Jobs for many, year and he, many years and he formed a company in Austin, Texas. And I saw him at a, a conference at the South by Southwest conference there. And he said something that really struck me, which was that the smaller your company is, the greater its cause must be. Because in the beginning, all you have to pay people with is uh, a cause to write something that's an injustice, something that's terribly wrong in the world, because that's what's going to attract people you can't afford to pay to team with you to go do something. Um, and that's a really good litmus test to see if you're solving an important enough, big enough problem. Um, again, if you're just buying a business and maybe it's a donut shop at the right location or the right place, it's just not run well, perhaps you don't really need to have a cause and lots of people opt in, but then the risk level in something like that is much less because it's an existing business. It's not just a piece of paper and uh, somebody deciding to go do it. Um, so that's, I think that's a that's a pretty big function of it. And then the money matters, right? Like you could you could have a great committed team, you could have all of those things, but if a banker, a VC, or most importantly, your spouse is not willing to subsidize your journey on this thing, maybe you don't have the best idea, uh, or maybe you don't have the best relationship. I don't know. So that's the first test, right? Is yeah. try and sell your spouse. Correct. Okay. Correct. I, I think that's it's great that, advice. That's really important because uh, this is the other thing I've seen is both people in a, in a marriage or a relationship decide to embark on risky adventures of their own uh, to go do that. And a business is a risky adventure. Well, you both can't do that. You know, one of you has to be a bond and one of you has to be a stock. You know, one of you has to deliver consistent earnings to pay your bills where the other one has has got, you know, perhaps a greater return, but greater risk associated with it. Uh, and so you have to figure out who's going to bankroll you. In the first place you start is, you know, hopefully your partner. So that's another thing I learned in, in, my, in a venture I had. We had four partners. And I've said this at many venture conventions ever since, my greatest learning from that partnership, my single greatest learning was you can only go as fast as your most conservative partner's spouse. <laughs> <laughs> because everything you want to do or not do or every decision you want to make is debated not just with your partners, but your their sp respective spouses. Because in the end, in a way, they're your emotional and financial bankers in terms of where you want to go and what you need to do and how fast you can do it and what bets you're going to make. Uh, and that's a very big part of something that people don't think about. So now we've got the, down to the finer points of spousal permission yep. and buy-in. Yep. Any last thoughts you have? We've got someone who's really excited, and now they've listened to this and say, you know what? I think I can do that, and I can test it cheaply, and I'm going to go out and do it. What else is there that may, maybe we didn't cover? I realize this was an hour podcast, so it's impossible to cover everything. But uh, you know, any, I think, any parting thoughts? I think you're, you know, your spouse is your partner. So bring that person into the test results. Bring that person into forming the questions. Bring that person into, you know, have your banker travel the distance with you. Um, and also kind of like you guys do in your own work, when you sit down uh, with your clients, you know, you measure each person's risk tolerance, except the fact that you and your spouse may not have the same risk tolerance. It has a lot to do with how you grew up. 
uh, and you know what your parents did for a living, and you know the kinds of risks you have or haven't taken. You know, in my last venture where I was kidding about not really kidding about the spouses, my partner, who is the most conservative, was the child of two school teachers, and he was the only child, and his wife was the child of two judges. So civil service. So both of those folks were used to getting a very steady paycheck and a really nice pension at the end. For them to be involved in an entrepreneurial venture uh, was, you know, being on the moon. Whereas my family, you know, we're family of entrepreneurs. For us, we're like, yeah, so what's the problem? Let's go. Mm -hmm. If we fail, we'll get up and go do something else. Yeah. It's a whole different mindset. And that's not a small thing. Yeah. The only thing I'll add, not that I have really anything to possibly touch what you've mentioned, but some advice that I got when first starting out was believe and then don't look down. Yeah. And and after a while, you stop wanting to look down and you believe even more so. Um, That's actually a good point. The look down part is the hardest part because if you're, let's say you come from a corporate world, you're used to a lot of analysis. You're used to a lot of looking at everything a million ways. And the reason is because in a corporate world, uh, the risks, the you know, there you have big existing businesses you're trying to not mess up. You're trying to not mess up versus try to do something that hasn't been done before. Um, you could get paralyzed by looking down too much, by assessing nothing but risk. You have to risk, you have to assess the opportunity and balance it correctly. Uh, that said, people who've grown up in entrepreneurial environments who get the fever of going to go do something, they almost always overvalue the opportunity and undervalue the risk. Um, and so if you kind of take some of those other benchmarks of, well, is it a vitamin or a painkiller? Is it a big enough problem for enough people? You know, is it, you know, half as expensive, twice as good? Those are sort of relatively simple benchmarks that you can help mitigate some of that risk. Is it a business I'm buying that's existing that I could accelerate and do something with those sorts of things could um get you around that but yeah don't look down and don't look back once you commit you got to go uh but you got to be prepared to pivot around things that you never anticipated will happen and they will happen speaking of you got to go neil patel we got to go all right that was awesome thank you we're That's very great. lucky to have you here good to be here uh for all those listeners out there uh, if you need more information, you can reach us at evofypodcast at gmail.com. If you're not already a subscriber, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or you can check out our blog uh, at evofypodcast or at evoadvisors.com. So again, thank you, Neil Patel. Thanks to the rest of the Evofy crew. We will see you uh, in a few weeks. Take care. Thank Bye. you.